that in mind as we turn to God's Word, looking at Philippians chapter 1, we're finishing chapter 1 today. Start in the end of verse 18, where Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, and then launches into all the reasons why he will continue to rejoice. So, beginning at the end of verse 18 in Philippians chapter 1, and then we'll read through the end of the chapter. Our text is verses 27 through 30. Hear now the reading of God's word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's take just One more moment for prayer. Father in heaven, please send your spirit that inspired these words to be written through the Apostle Paul so long ago and work through these words in our very lives at this present moment on this very day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes two fascinating questions. And I want you to think about why the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have to write questions such as these. These are the two questions that begin Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. What is it about the message of the Apostle Paul, the theology of the Apostle Paul, the word of God that comes through the Apostle Paul, what is it about that message that brings him to a point where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has to write, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, many of you probably know how, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul immediately answers that question, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But for now, think about that. The message of the Apostle Paul is so full of God's grace. His message of salvation is that it is salvation by grace alone through faith and not because of your works. He is intent on communicating from the outset, before he gets to your behavior and conduct, that salvation is because of the Lord, that God is sovereign in salvation. So we rejoice in the doctrines of grace and see that his grace is so extensive, so elaborate, so comprehensive, that it is not something we sinners can mess up. And if we, anything was left to us, we would surely mess it up. We would be those who would become the reasons that we were not saved because of our sin. So the Lord, in his grace, has done absolutely everything necessary to save us from our sins. It is not because of our works. And it is because Paul is so straightforward and direct and literally up front with that message of grace, even saying things like what he says in Philippians 1.6, that he's confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. You see the grace of the Lord at every point, even to the end of the age, even to the day of judgment throughout our entire Christian life. It is because he has such an understanding of that, because he communicates the extent of grace that he has to say. Well, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? And then he answers it. By no means, or in some translations, God forbid. It's not that Paul is unconcerned with your conduct as a Christian. It's just that he sees even your conduct within the framework of the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? Absolutely not. Of course not. By no means. God forbid. The grace of God is to the extent that it transforms your conduct before the face of God. And we see that in Our text today in verses 27 through 30, while Paul throughout the first chapter of Philippians is concerned with the gospel and mentions that word over and over, the 
gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, he speaks about your participation in the gospel. In verse 12, he speaks about how his imprisonment, believe it or not, results in the greater progress of the gospel, of that good news. Verse 16, he says that he's been appointed to, uh, uh, to defend the gospel, the good news. And then for a fourth time in our text today, in verse 27, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in these concluding verses of Philippians chapter 1, we have verses 27 through 28, which address your conduct within the grace of God, and then conflict in verses 29 and 30. Two aspects, two dimensions of the Christian life are your Christian conduct and the conflict that you inevitably experience as Christians. And what I want to begin, or really this whole sermon, what I want us to do is just just focus on various words and phrases in these four verses. Conduct and conflict, the keyword outline, come specifically from the verses that we're looking at. Conduct in verse 27 and conflict in verse 30. Then the phrases... Hear what Paul is saying in verse 27. He's concerned with your conduct. Yes, it's all by the grace of God. Even your progress in holiness, your sanctification, your Christian life is because of the work of God's grace in your life through the Spirit and because of his redeeming power now at work in you. But Paul says how concerned he is with the conduct of your Christian life. He begins by saying only. Among, you know, um, in light of everything else, he's sort of saying, stop at this point and consider this. In light of all that has been so said so far, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. One of the lovely aspects of scripture and theology is these sorts of statements, sweeping statements, sprawling statements, statements that are concise and compact, only a few words, but have so much meaning to them. Jesus does this, and in doing so, he is actually quoting from elsewhere in scripture, where he summarizes all of man's responsibility before God by saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just in those two statements, you have everything we're responsible for, and you can think about all that is packed into those very simple statements. Our catechism begins in a similar way. What is your chief end? What is your primary purpose? What is it that we are called to above all other things. Well, man's primary purpose, man's chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. A concise statement with so much packed into it, you can take days to think about it. Well, let's add this to the mix. Conduct yourselves in a manner 
worthy of the gospel? What should you act like at work? At work, you should conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. How should you behave as parents? As parents, you should conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. How should you treat your neighbor? You should conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel when it comes to the neighbors that live around you. How about at school? Well, at school, you should conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. As children, you should conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And as we say that phrase over and over, think about all that is packed into it. Think about the way Paul is communicating here. Yes, he's concerned about day in and day out. He's concerned about each moment of the lives of these Philippian Christians and derivatively of each moment of your lives. He's concerned that you conduct yourself in a certain way. But you see how he doesn't fall into what we might call moralism. Just do this and don't do this. Just do what's right. He doesn't fall into that, does he? By saying it in this way, he does something masterful. Live in a manner, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Central to how you live in the different spheres of your life, in the different stages of your life, in the different contexts and circles of your life. Central to all of that is the gospel of Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ ought to inform how you live moment by moment. Well, what does that mean? Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to influence how you live, the manner in which you live. It's a genius stroke of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put it in this way, to say that each moment of your conduct should be in a manner worthy of the gospel because it keeps you from simply thinking, I do what's good or I do what's bad. Instead, it brings you to the cross of Christ. It brings you to the need for forgiveness. It brings you to even a, a moment-by-moment -moment need for forgiveness. It brings you to the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, this idea, this history that God himself became man and then lived among us and conducted himself at every point in a way that was absolutely spotless and perfect before the face of God. That summarizes the life of Christ and that life came to a death on the cross which Paul speaks about in chapter 2 of Philippians, saying that he was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why? So that he could pay the wages of, so that he could gather the wages of sin as a penalty, so that he could endure the wrath 
that sin deserves, that he would die the death that sin demands and conquer death itself by rising again from the dead because he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Paul is saying, now as you Christians conduct yourself in the ins and outs of life, moment by moment, don't lose sight of that gospel. Have Jesus Christ and what he did through his life and what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, have that at the center of your conduct. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Never lose sight of that gospel. Go through your life striving to live in a manner worthy of that good news concerning your Savior, Jesus Christ. You see how helpful that is? If all we have is, here's what's wrong, and here's what's right. Here's the law of God, and here is rebellion and sin against what God commands. Oh, it only takes, you know this, I know this, it only takes us moments to fall off of what is right and to fall into what is wrong. And what's even worse is when we manage to do what is right, by the time we start thinking, hey, I'm doing what's right, we've fallen into the even greater error of something called self-righteousness. Look at how good I am for doing what is right. Paul gives us a phrase to live moment by moment considering in a manner, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see how living in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ makes provision for the fact that you sin. Not that sinning is necessarily living in a... It, sinning wouldn't be living in a manner worthy of the gospel, but repentance is. Asking for forgiveness is. Understanding that you are a work in progress and everybody around you who's claiming to be a Christian is also a work in progress, that nobody in this building, that nobody who is alive today and claiming Jesus Christ has arrived at perfection, that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So you live asking forgiveness. You live repenting. You live in humility, understanding that you need forgiveness. You live realizing that your sins are so great, they require divine blood to be shed for you, and Christ himself shed that divine blood on your behalf. So that you, moment by moment, can receive forgiveness for the various ways in which you sin. Can live in the humility of that, that humility being worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can extend that forgiving, understanding, compassion to all those around you. Living with conduct in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he goes on in addressing our conduct by saying that we are to stand firm in one spirit. 
with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Beautiful words to surround striving together. You think about striving, it seems to indicate competition and rivalry. If we ever watch any sort of a sport, it usually involves competition, rivalry, one man striving against another, or one woman riving against another. But here he puts these two words together, striving together in this unity and harmony, one spirit, one mind, the faith, the gospel, this one good news that we have found in the one Lord Jesus Christ who offers this specific salvation through him that makes up this specific faith through standing firm in one spirit. A picture of church life. You see what he's saying to these Philippians. Don't compete. Don't be in rivalry with one another. He'll go into further detail in chapter 2, but he's reminding you, church life, it, it is a striving. You're, you're making it through this life. You are enduring by God's grace. Conduct yourself, certainly, in a manner worthy of the gospel, but remember that you and your striving are striving together. You are united by what you believe. You are united by the Savior through which you have been saved. You are united by this good news, this the good news, the gospel. You are united by one spirit. It's unclear as to whether he means the spirit among the people of Philippi or the Holy Spirit. Perhaps he means both. That's the way I like to understand it. But one spirit at work within each one of you, that same spirit at work among you as a people, this same spirit drawing us to conviction concerning the good news and the faith in which we strive. And he speaks about the result of this sort of conduct. So you have this manner worthy of the gospel of Christ that we are called to, the striving together in our one faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is what we might call church life. And he has a fascinating insight into what this church life results in. Verse 28 says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Certainly writing to make us think, to get us to slow down and Consider these words. Speaking about your conduct in verse 27, and he's continuing to address the conduct of the Christian in verse 28, saying that your conduct should not involve you being alarmed by your opponent. Your conduct should be courageous. You live in a world that is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, a world that, after all, put the Lord Jesus Christ to death on the cross and has continued to rebel against God and his word. And that was certainly true back in the first century when this letter was written to Philippi. 
But Paul says, don't be alarmed. Have courage. Take heart. Don't live in fear. Look around and observe your opposition, but not in a way that makes you cower. Endure courageously. Why? It seems that he points to the conduct of the church, how the church itself conducts itself, as a reason for courage, as a reason to not be alarmed by our opponents. I believe he points to the church itself and says, the church is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Either the church or the courage of the church serves at that sign, as that sign. And, and think about that. I think it's poignant, helpful. It's interesting to think about words. There's courage, right? Then there's what's discouraging, things that take away courage. And then there's what's encouraging, things that give you courage. The church itself a courageous church in the face of op opposition is in itself encouraging. To consider that is encouraging. It displaces cowardliness, makes, takes away the fear of opposition, and, and grants you courage. And it did all the way back then, even when it was a very small church. Paul's saying, look at what the Lord is doing. He's planting church after church after church. And they're confessing this one faith, rejoicing in this one gospel, celebrating the one Lord Jesus Christ, being worked in by this one spirit. And you can compare notes among them and hear the one word of God that comes through this good news. And it's in the face of opposition, the Roman Empire persecuting these Christians, Christians saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And even up through today, we see all the ways in which the, the world around us tries to call good evil and evil good, all the ways in which the world around us opposes God's holiness, opposes God's existence, wants to do what is right in its own eyes. And we can look and see the church and reflect on what Jesus Christ himself said. That the church would endure and that the gates of hell would never prevail against it. That he would preserve for himself a people that he would gather from every nation, tongue, and tribe that he would build his church. It is a sign for us of the destruction of God's opponent and the salvation that is ours through him for our encouragement. That is how we are to conduct ourselves. Strive together in a manner worthy of the gospel with courage. And then Paul turns his thoughts in these final two verses to the conflict that each of us endure as Christians. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
aren't those interesting sorts of phrases that, on the one hand, comfort us, and on the other hand, remind us of what is in store for us in this Christian life of conflict. Yes, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. For you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So straightforward, so direct. An answer to so many questions. It is first the comfort. As Christians, each one of us at some point cries out to the Lord in language very much like the Psalms, saying, Lord, where are you? Do you see what's going on? Where are you in this affliction? What is the purpose of this? Why, oh Lord, is this happening? How long will this take place? In our times of grief, affliction, pain, sorrow, we ask these questions. And here is a comforting verse. It's part of being a Christian. It's part of what comes along with belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's own son wasn't above affliction and suffering. God himself became a man and lived among us and endured pain and sorrow and suffering. Man of sorrows, what a name. So Paul says, if you're believing in this Christ, you're going to endure suffering. Physical suffering, spiritual suffering, emotional suffering. Jesus Christ himself said as much when he said that you need to take up your cross and follow him. And Paul does more than simply call you to relate to your Savior in your suffering. He directs your attention even to himself in verse 30 saying that he is experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul's saying there, I was among you. You can go back and read about the beginning of Paul with these Philippians in Philippi, his beating, his imprisonment, And he's saying, you saw this conflict. When I brought this good news, when I brought this one faith, when I brought the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Spirit started working among you in Philippi, drawing together you as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing you into conduct worthy of the gospel, there was conflict to the extent that I was thrown in prison in your very midst. You saw this conflict in me. The world opposes the gospel. The world is opposed to the kingdom of God. There's two kingdoms, a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light, and there's opposition between them. Conflict that you now are a part of as members of the church, and Paul is saying, don't be surprised by this. You saw it in me. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised by this. The leader of all of us, the Savior, the Good Shepherd himself, endured suffering so you will for his sake. But the glory of this is that Paul, an apostle, 
calls these Philippian Christians to understand what they're enduring as the same sort of conflict that he endures as an apostle, whether it's through church planting in Philippi back in Acts 16 when he was thrown in prison there, or the prison that he's writing from because he says, now you hear to be this in me. He is at the moment of this writing, suffering conflict for the gospel's sake, opposition, and saying, even in light of this, take courage. You're in the same conflict I'm in. You're a Christian following the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in him. You suffer. He bore his cross. You bear your cross. Take comfort even from the conflict, understanding that it speaks to you about the side that you are on. And Paul refers to himself over and over in this first chapter, and it's so appropriate and helpful because, among other things, Paul is saying, don't, don't worry about me. I, I know you love me, and that gives me tremendous joy. I know you're concerned about me as I'm not able to visit you at the present time, and you've heard of my imprisonment. Indeed, I am imprisoned and in chains, but don't you don't need to be discouraged over this. I enjoy even this. I rejoice over this. I rejoice from this prison. Even here, I'm able to conduct myself in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even here, I'm believing in him, suffering for his sake, engaged in the same conflict as you are there in Philippi. But let's not stop with the Apostle Paul. Let's go on at every point to the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice to realize that beginning next week we turn to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, that really puts all of chapter 1 into the right understanding and context. It's not ultimately that we be like the Apostle Paul, but that, as he says in 1 Corinthians, insofar as Paul is like the Lord Jesus Christ, we be like the Apostle Paul. Ultimately, we are looking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ by grace in a conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ himself, who didn't look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others not regarding equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead emptying himself of all honor, becoming a bondservant in the likeness of men, humbling himself to the point of death, even death of the cross, so that he would be one day highly exalted. Look to that model of life and have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for the idea of cruciformity, that our lives do take the shape of the cross. Help us to see that in each and, last mo each and every moment of it. Keep us from being thrown and disappointed and discouraged by suffering and affliction. 
Help us to be encouraged, realizing that we are members of the same conflict that Philippi was involved with, that Paul was involved with, that we are really and truly the sheep following the good shepherd. Give us courage and faith, even in the face of opposition. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.